Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This episode is kindly sponsored by NHS Test and Trace. With the kids finally back at school, hurrah, and some normalcy returning, we're all keen to keep life moving, aren't we? So, NHS Test and Trace are encouraging all adults in England to get tested twice a week using totally free rapid COVID-19 tests, which are now available for all adults in England. So, testing is going to help prevent the around one in three people who have COVID-19 but with no symptoms. So, they spread it with absolutely no knowledge that they are doing that. So we're all really busy, but rapid testing is a fast and easy way to find out if you have coronavirus with results in around 30 minutes. Isn't that brilliant? So you can order tests to home, which is what we've been doing. Go to a test site or participating pharmacies. For more information and guidance online, go to nhs.uk forward slash get tested. That's nhs.uk forward slash get tested. And the more of us that take part, the more we can help protect each other. So, on to this week's episode. Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode. It is a special one this week because it is with Nikki Clinch. If you don't know Nikki, she is a maturation coach and facilitator, an integrative holistic counsellor and author. She is also one of my very dearest friends. So Nikki and I recorded this episode together to celebrate the release of Nikki's first ever book called Surrender. I was lucky enough to have an advanced copy and it is incredible. In the book, Nikki shares her own inspiring story and many of her clients' stories of what it means to let go of who we've told ourselves we should be in the world and start to explore who we actually are, which Nikki calls the process of surrender. We talk a lot in this episode about Nikki's marriage because unbelievably through the process of writing this book about what it means to surrender and grow into our truest selves, her marriage broke down and we talk about that in the episode and it's very moving and it's very raw because of what then happened and I will leave you to listen to the episode to find out because the story is so moving and courageous and just listen and you'll know exactly what I mean. <laughs> we also talk about transitioning out of lockdown because Nikki emigrated to New Zealand also while writing this book and Nikki shares what it's been like for her two young children coming out of lockdown and we have I think a really useful conversation about how we can support ourselves and our children as we in the UK are transitioning out of lockdown at the moment. So I hope you find that as helpful as I did. So here is the episode. Please do check out Nikki's book, Surrender. It's out on the 1st of June, but you can pre-order now. I've already ordered a lot of copies for my friends and clients. So please do get yourself one too. Here is the episode. 
Nikki, welcome back. This is your third time. Once I had you on, once you interviewed me, remember, for the 50th episode. Oh, yes. And now you're back on. So you're almost like a mother. Well, you are a member of the Motherkind family, but you're almost like part of the podcast anyway. (laughs) Gosh, that interview for the 50th anniversary, that feels like a lifetime ago. I mean, that really feels like a long time ago now, doesn't it? I feel like we were babies then. (laughs) It was quite a long time ago. Yeah. How long ago was that now? I don't even know. A couple of years. Wow. Gosh, that went so fast and so much has happened since then. I mean, Mother Kind is just blowing up. Well, And likewise, that's what I want to talk about today. I'm so excited to hear about the book and everything in it how do you feel by the time this interview comes out the book will be on pre-order so it'll be out in the world how does that feel when you contemplate that moment I have to admit it feels bigger than I expected it would feel it's a long process like I finished the first draft in June 2020 and then I wrote the rewrites in December and January 2021. So I was sitting in quarantine in Auckland, having just emigrated my whole family here. And I was in the toilets because you're in quarantine, you're in one hotel room. And I was in the toilets writing the rewrites. And it's a very long process. And I'm not the same person that I was even when I delivered the manuscript in. So I thought I would feel just like this is the natural progression, but it does feel big. It feels big and very vulnerable. I suddenly realized that not many people have actually read this except, you know, you and people I love and that I've sent it to and that this book is bigger than me. It's so much bigger than me. And I have had every feeling under the sun. I have felt terrified. I have felt like hiding. I have felt excited. I have felt like a kid on Christmas morning. I felt everything. And now I've kind of processed all of that. I feel ready now. You know, whenever I connect back to why I wrote the book, you know, whenever I connect back to the vision that I have of really helping human beings to break free of these stories that just keep us in survival, that keep us so blocked. I just can't wait for as many people as possible to read it. And it's not about me anymore. It's just about that. I hope that people read it. I hope that it moves people. I hope that it touches people in the heart and it makes an impact for them. So yeah, I'm kind of just showing up every day and just remembering that. I think when I read the book it's called Surrender but what I really felt it was about was going from surviving you know like ticking along in life looking like probably on the outside everything's pretty good and you know the kids are going to school or nursery and you might be in a marriage or partnership and you're holding down a job you know like that kind of survival yeah which I know well and I know you know well and we're going to talk about that yeah versus really living yeah which is that kind of roller coaster of that decision to live a fulfilled courageous awakened life yeah and it is a big decision and I want you to share because I think the story that really kind of sums up 
the power of your work and the book is around your marriage. Yes. Because you were pretty comfortable. You know, I knew you, I knew your marriage and and yet you took this really brave decision. Well, hopefully you're going to tell us the story in full, but you took this really brave decision to honour your needs and the incredible way that that unfolded. Tell us about that. So, you know, just to touch on first what you were saying about going from surviving to living, and I say this a lot, so anyone who knows me already will have heard me say this, and I apologize for repeating myself, but you can't hear it enough. We cannot see from where we're seeing from. We can't see past our blind spots. We can't see our own blind spots. So when we're in our blind spots, we just see that that's normal. That's just the way it is. And so we live in our lives with so many blind spots, tolerating this existence, thinking this is as good as it gets. This is just the way it is. And we could go decades and decades like that without really realizing that we're not actually living, we're just getting by. And that's what happened for me, you know, and I've done a lot of work on myself and (laughs) uncovered a lot of blind spots, but I had been blind to a certain level of awareness in the ability of me having my deeper emotional, soulful needs being met in my marriage. We had been together nine years. You know, we had two children. We'd bought a house. We'd built a life. And I was doing well in my work. And I could easily have just told myself that that was good enough. But when I went out to Peru, I went out to do a retreat in the jungle in the Amazon. And it was on my second day there. And I share about this moment in the book. And the facilitator said to us, it was an alignment retreat. And he said to us, you can't be a little bit in alignment. You're either in alignment or you're not in alignment. And he started talking about imposter syndrome and how this feeling that we have of being a fraud. And he started speaking about it as that comes up because something deep down in our psyche knows that something is a little bit out of integrity or a lot out of integrity. And when he said that, I started feeling sick. Like I actually felt like my stomach was churning. As I went back to my cabin that night and I started journaling, I realized that it all just started hitting me and it was like rocks falling from my eyes. I remember it was similar when I first came into Al-Anon or similar when I first came into any big kind of shift in my life, like awareness started coming. And I realized that there were so many moments in my marriage where I wasn't really saying what I really felt and I wasn't really honoring what I really needed because I didn't want to rock the boat, because I didn't want to create conflict, because I didn't want to trigger my husband, because I didn't want the possibility of being left. Like so many little minor moments of micromanaging my own self to fit this picture that life had taught me is my marriage. It should look like this, right? And as I realized this sitting in that cabin, I started just to cry. And I felt so sad for myself that I had been pushing myself aside so much that I had given up on speaking these things anymore. It was a kind of a moment of beauty and grief all at the same time, because I knew that something was about to change big time. 
I also realized that that was exactly how I felt as a little girl in my childhood with my mum. You know, I felt as a little girl, I would tiptoe around, too afraid to be my full self in case it would trigger her, in case it would rock the boat, in case I would be abandoned. So I would micromanage myself and just get by just to keep the peace, right? And I was like, oh, my goodness. After all this work I've done on myself, I'm repeating my childhood again, just being the same as I've always been. And that whole retreat was about me showing up and honoring that worth for myself. And so I came home and when I ended the marriage, it was an act of love. I did it because because I wanted to love myself more than ever before. I know that's a crazy thing (laughs) to say or to hear, but it was like the only way I could really honor what I had been denying in myself for so long. It doesn't sound crazy to me because that's what healing is. Healing to me is giving myself everything that I didn't have. Yeah, and taking the risk to lose whatever you think you needed just to honor what is absolutely true. And that's why I call it surrender because in those moments, it takes so much courage to let something go without knowing where it will take you or having anything to replace it. You just have to be ready just to go just in service of what is truthful for you. It's petrifying. Well, I called you the night he moved out, remember, and I was shaking. I mean, I was numb. I felt sick. I was absolutely terrified. Like my whole world was falling apart or breaking open or however I couldn't see it at the time or what was going to happen. And I trusted, like I really, really trusted. I just kept saying to myself, the only thing I can control is how I show up. And if I'm showing up in alignment with my truth, with what feels like love, then that's the best I can do. Everything else is out of my hands. And then what happened? (sighs) Do you know that this is the most asked question and story that I've ever had in my whole 10 years of doing this work, which is why I keep saying, read the book, read the book. But now I can talk about it because the book's coming out. Well, then I had to let go and I really had to let go without having any idea of what was going to happen next. It was like jumping off a cliff into the complete unknown. And it really was. There was no parts of me that had an inkling that we would get back together. There was no parts of me that thought we would break through. There really wasn't. It was over. It was done. So for me, what was so interesting is that when I had the courage to do that, it impacted every area of my life. I started to realize that there were so many other areas in my life where I was doing the same thing and kind of micromanaging myself to fit into a picture or a role. And suddenly I realized that my whole brand, the warrior woman brand, was based on my survival of my trauma. I have to be the warrior woman. (laughs) (laughs) it all happened at once. It was like suddenly everything that was out of alignment with my truth, that was based on surviving my trauma of my past, just started breaking down. I was even signed, originally signed to write 
the Warrior Woman book. That was what I was signed to write. And I had written 50,000 words of that book and it felt so wrong. And I sat with my editor, my amazing editor, and I said, this isn't the book I was meant to write. And she said, all I care about is that you write the book you were born to write. Let it go. Just let it all go. We can change the title. We can give you six months extension on your release date. We'll just let it all go, Nikki. You're clearly going through a metamorphosis. And so I did. I threw it out and I cried all night. And then the next morning I was meditating and then the outline for this book just started coming through and it all happened at the same time. Like my husband had moved out two weeks before the book fell apart and then the new book came through. And it was just like the more that I was willing to be courageous enough to let go of because it was not authentic. It did not feel truthful. It was like the more space got cleared for something new to keep coming through. And yes, I felt terrified. So what happened with my husband and I, I think the one thing that gave us the possibility of having the outcome that we've had, which is we renewed our marriage, we rebirthed something, was that because we have kids, we decided that we would meet every week for therapy because we had to bring them up together. No matter what, we knew that that was a reality. So we met for therapy every week, begrudgingly. I really didn't want to do it. I was pissed and I was done. And I was like, oh, can't I just do my own therapy? Or do I have to meet you every week? But I did. And we did that for six months. And for five of those months, I was 100% convinced that we were divorcing. And in that time, I learned things about myself that I had never seen before. Blind spots. It was like I was had been walking around with like blinkers on my eyes like horses have. Like I talk about it in the book. We just can't see until something breaks it and we just get a moment of awareness or something pierces that illusion that we've been living in. One of the biggest things that showed up for me in that six-month period, and it's such a pivotal teaching in the book, is that I was so focused on blaming him for all the problems that I was experiencing and that I was feeling. My feelings of my needs not being met, my feelings of loneliness, my feelings of disconnection. If he could just change this, or if he did this differently, or if he could fix this, I'm going to find someone better who can do things differently, and then I won't feel these things. And what clearly showed up in our work together was that my experience of myself in my marriage was identical to my experience of myself with my mother. Identical. Identical. Boof. When I wrote it down, how do I experience myself in my marriage? Always longing to have my needs met, but never having my needs met. Kind of a loneliness, like I'm alone here, disconnected. I would write it down and I realized that's exactly how I felt as a little girl. And he did the same. And it was, I mean, I'm not even saying close, I'm talking identical mirrors. And I saw that I only knew myself as this person. Like I had identified so much of myself in the world as this person that I realized five months into our separation that actually I had chosen perfectly. I had chosen so perfectly, like 
more perfectly than I knew was possible, that his patterns and behavioral stuff was so perfectly aligned with the pain and the wounds that I carried. And I was the same for him, that it was like a perfect match. But then we would be in this turmoil of trying to change it, change the other person. So there was this enormous breakthrough around five months in when I realized it was me that experienced reality in this way. Whenever he spoke a certain way, whenever he did certain things, I could only really see it with this filter that was colored by my past. And he had the same with me. There's two beautiful chapters in the book where one of them is called Letting Go of Pictures, where I realized that I had a picture in my mind of what I needed since I was four years old in order to get through this life. And when I met him, I was so focused on the picture that I never really saw my husband. I never really saw him. And even though I saw some of him, the picture was always stronger than anything else. And when you're willing to let go of all the pictures, which means being in the unknown, something so truthful and intimate can come through. And and I realized that he had been kind of a character in the story that I thought I needed in order to get through. In that chapter, I make amends to him. I say, I took him hostage. You didn't know it, but I had taken you hostage in my story. You know, I needed the safe, reliable guy who was going to come and give me a family so that I can get away from the pain of my past. And it was such a beautiful moment when I made this amends to him because he said he felt seen for the very first time. Something started to heal between us and he did the same with me. And then there's another chapter called Telling the Truth, Truth Telling. And this was important. My husband and I sat down together and we had a session where we and it was five months in where we said everything we thought we were never allowed to say. Everything. And this is such an important thing for listeners to hear. You know, we live in a world and we suppress so much. We don't even know what we're suppressing because we've got a picture of who we should be or how life should be or how life should look or what is good or what is bad or what is lovable and what is not. And anything that doesn't fit in those pictures, we suppress, and even from ourselves. And in that suppression, we're not able to truly be available for the deeper levels of intimacy and aliveness in our life and with each other. And it robs us of a certain level of freedom. And so we sat down and we had this truth-telling session, and I really said it. I said, conventional marriage is not for me. I feel stifled sharing a bed with someone every day. I need space. Like, I like having my own room. I like having space. I said all the things that I thought I was never allowed to say that didn't fit in any of these pictures that we had been taught about what was good and what was the right thing to do. And he did the same with me. And in that experience, it was like being liberated. And somehow we both just felt so free to be our whole selves. 
And we had a massive breakthrough. It was like, suddenly I didn't have to be a certain kind of Nikki to fit in this role of his wife in this life or even in this world. And he didn't have to be a certain kind of Kevin. And we just started feeling very free together. And we started building a friendship and we started off with friendship first. And in that, a love started coming through that neither of us had ever experienced like a really different kind of love where both of us were allowed to be our full whole selves, no suppression. Didn't fit any picture. We were allowed to make up our own rules and we were just allowed to be honest in that we fell in love again and we decided to remarry and we wrote completely new vows completely new agreements and that has been the basis of our marriage today and it still feels like a new marriage i would say it's a completely a completely new marriage to what the one we had before <laughs> that was it's, a long story <laughs> so much. i think there's just so much in that story and i'm not surprised you've been asked about it because i think it really demonstrates the challenge for a modern woman could be in her marriage, could be in her job, could be in her mothering, could be in, you know, her role as a mother, sister, daughter, whatever it might be, daughter-in-law, whatever, where we feel like unconsciously we have to be a certain way. And of course that comes yeah. from, you know, what were we taught? And, you know, I think I really got this when I got that our nervous systems unconsciously seek the familiar Somewhere yes. it was really obvious to me, pre my sort of recovering healing days, was in friendships. I would just always be in friendships that mirrored my relationship with my mum. And someone said to me in a meeting, actually, in an Anon meeting, you seek the familiar. And those three words like changed my life. Yep. I think when we understand that, when I understood that, I mean, it's painful. It can't help but kick off like it did for you. So who am I then outside of this? story who am I really because if I'd had a different childhood I'd be a different person so who am I really and that's one of the questions you ask at the start of the book mm -hmm. so how do you answer that who are you really today sat here now well firstly I think that that is one of those amazing questions that it's the question itself that allows the transformation they're kind of two different kinds of questions. There's the questions that need to be answered. And then there are the questions that need to be lived. The question itself needs to be lived. And so that's why I ask it at the beginning of the book. And I say, this is not a question for you to try and find the answer. This is the question for you to live in the question. Like as long as you are in that questioning, you are keeping things open in an inquiry in an investigation, in a curiosity, and it allows an opening rather than this fixed conditioning that happens that the mind tries to create. The mind loves answers. If we know the answer, what will survive? That's basically the reason why the mind wants to find answers for everything. But as soon as we put an answer on something, if we already know, it's like 100% probably from a conditioning we've learned from somewhere else. So if you sit in the question, you are allowing yourself 
the possibility of something completely unknown and new to come through. There are chapters in the book when I call listening beyond your ears. Like when you're sitting in a question like that and you learn how to listen, not just from here, but listening from your heart, your body, your whole soul of what feels right for you each day, of what's the next step in this moment. And in that something new can be created. You know, when you speak about that we seek the familiar, I would go even as far as say we're addicted to the familiar. It's probably the biggest addiction of human beings is our addiction to our story because it has completely defined our identity. I didn't realize that my identity was the one that's always unsafe. So much so that when amazing things would come in my life, or even if a lot of love would come in, I would repel it. I would reject it because it didn't fit with how I've known myself. Kevin and I had these amazing moments, and we talk about it, but we release a podcast this week where we share about it publicly, where, <laughs> where we stopped triggering each other, where we would always trigger each other. And that stopped. And then we would have these moments when normally that would be when the fight would kick off, but it didn't. And we would sit there and it would be so uncomfortable because we were getting on so well. (laughs) And we would have these moments when it would be like, wow, this is really unsettling. The experience of something new coming through is unsettling at first. It's meant to be uncomfortable. It's like shedding a new skin and growing a new one. So I want to share that because I think most people think that that's a reason that something is wrong. But actually, that's a sign that something is shifting. And that's why we need to get comfortable with being with the uncomfortable, because the more you can be in that uncomfortableness of something new, the more it becomes your new normal it can actually set, it can rewrite something with you until it just becomes normal for you to allow love in or to not get into a fight or to have peace in your life. You know, I called it surrender because there are like a million points of surrender in this process. And some of them are big, like the day I ended my marriage. And some of them are just little daily choices of choosing to not resist this and allow myself to feel the uncomfortableness or choosing to not to act out in an old way and allow myself to step into the unknown or choosing just to show up for myself when I would normally abandon myself. Like these are all surrendering the resistance, surrendering the story, surrendering the familiar. That's really what this book is about. Why? Because that allows a new aliveness to come through. It's so true. And sometimes I feel like there's so many things that we kind of have wrong in the West and we were taught, you know, one of them is definitely that if you're afraid you shouldn't do it and that if you're uncomfortable, something is wrong. And the other one I think is that if you're going through a breakdown or an ending or, you know, that's somehow something that we need to fix as quickly as possible. You know, and the book's in three phases. And the first phase is actually about the power of that ending. And I think that's really powerful right now because in the UK, you know, this phase of lockdown is coming to an end. Yeah. 
And I wondered if you can talk to that, if people are feeling that undercurrent of discomfort at the transition, how could you use that as an opportunity, as we've been talking about, to reimagine things for yourself, maybe break free of that story that you've always told yourself? Well, you know, I start the book with the chapter called The Beginning of the End, <laughs> which I know is a it may seem morbid to start a book with a chapter called that, but I think it's really important because endings are never really endings. Endings are beginnings in disguise, or they can be. And so, you know, we can't begin something until something is ended. And so where everyone is in the UK, I would say that the first step is to allow the acceptance or the surrender to the fact that whatever once was, the last time you were out in the world being you, that's likely to have changed. That's likely to have come to an end, whether it's big or small. You know, some people have literally lost, you know, homes, jobs, people, loved ones. And then other people have lost patterns, behaviors, ideas of themselves, perceptions of themselves, perceptions of what they want their life to be. You know, there's been little and big endings I think the first step is to surrender this need to get back to the way it was. The way it was is gone. And that may sound morbid, but actually the more we can accept that everything in life changes, everything, we just deny it. But in Chinese medicine, literally nothing is static. Everything is in motion. And the more that we can allow change just to be part of the way life aliveness moves, the more we can actually start dancing with it and flowing with it rather than this incessant desire to get back to something. You know, I speak about it in the book, the definition of fixing something is taking something that's broken and trying to find the way to get it back to the way it was. I'll just fix it to get it back to the way it was. But in fixing, nothing changes. But in healing, the definition of healing is looking at what ended and looking at what broke and learning about what created the break, learning about what created the ending, taking what we've learned and being able to allow ourselves to grow into something new from what we've learned from the break. In healing, we evolve. Something changes. We get to grow. And so as you come out of lockdown in the UK, I mean, the first step I would say is allow yourself to really let this be new. If you storm out of your houses trying to get back to who you were and just be the way it was, you're probably going to get completely overwhelmed. You're going to get panic attacks. You're going to feel completely, you know, a lot of emotions moving through. So, you know, I would say treat this with real tenderness and with real curiosity. You know, there's a point in the book where I speak about the newborn phase. I've noticed in everyone I've ever worked with, whenever people go through a huge shift in transformation. The story releases, a pattern releases, something that they've always identified with releases. There's always the phase that I call the newborn phase because they'll say to me, Nikki, I feel like I don't know how to be me. I feel like it's all new. I'm learning how to walk again. Well, you literally are. 
And so to treat that with curiosity instead of terror, like how when you look at babies and they learn how to walk, they really like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? And allowing that curiosity and that tenderness to be part of your everyday, like coming out into the world and really paying attention. What feels good to me now? What do I need now? Where am I now? Who am I now? And allowing those questions to create something new for yourself. And again, that can be big and it can be small. There's real possibility here to create something completely unknown and new. That's just what I was thinking as you were talking. I was thinking, this is a massive opportunity. There is. And it will bring up a lot of emotions. You know, I want to say those of you who are coming out of lockdown, you're going to feel a lot. And feeling is not a sign that something is wrong. Feeling is a sign that you're alive. So take the time to let yourself feel what you feel. Go slowly. Don't push yourself too fast. Take your time because then healing can happen. The more healing can happen, the more you can create something new. Yeah, it's been a really big old year. I would say that most of you in the UK won't really know how big this has impacted you until you start coming out into the world. You know, when we came here and we came out of quarantine, we went from the UK and then we went straight into two weeks quarantine here in Auckland. When my husband and I came out and the kids, I was shocked by how traumatized I had been by intensity of lockdown for so long. And I hadn't even been in it as long as you guys in the UK. And I really had to be a newborn. Things that were so normal to me in the past, going out, having lunch, going to a coffee shop, going for dinner, like I couldn't. We went out for dinner and I I literally had a panic attack. There was too many people in the room. I couldn't handle it. It was like starting anew again. I had to go slow. It was like, what am I capable of today? Uh, today I, I'm going to go and meet one person. Tomorrow, yeah, we're going to be able to go and sit in the coffee shop. Even just sort of seeing the expansiveness of the beach, I had to kind of ease it in gently and slowly. And I feel like that's also changed how I live my life. I'm actually moving slower, which I'm enjoying. Things are simpler, even though we are allowed to live freely here. I need a lot less than I used to stimulation. And so something new gets born in that if you can be that gentle with yourself and take care that much. How did you parent Tara and Callum through that? Because we've got the benefit of a developed prefrontal cortex, <laughs> you know, which means that we can think about these things and process them and have some sense of, you know, and what you were describing is that you were incredibly tender with yourself. And I'm wondering how did you extend that compassion and tenderness to them? Well, the first thing I would say, and I've heard this from a few people in the UK, clients of mine, so I think it might be something that will be happening repeatedly, but particularly Taya, who's seven, this surprised me and Kev. She had a lot of rage start coming up. She was really angry. So when we came out of quarantine, firstly, when we came out of quarantine, we had to break this addiction, this habit 
to just keep numbing out. They just wanted to watch TV all the time. Even we were in paradise. We were like sitting in paradise, the beaches outside and the kids just wanting to watch TV. And we saw how much this kind of numbing out state had just become their safety net then. So we really had to go through a very uncomfortable phase of trying to break that and get them to want to go outside and get them to want to go and engage with life again. And with that came a lot of emotions. Callum was having a lot of tantrums, a lot of tantrums. And Taya was getting a lot of anger. Now, because I hold space for people, I I was aware that that's just a really normal human reaction to changing patterns and behaviors. And when safety, survival pattern and behaviors get changed, and this goes for adults too, when we remove them, everything that we've been suppressing underneath the pattern is going to start coming out. So it was very normal. I knew that that's why she had so much rage. She'd been sitting on that for months the rage of being confined, the rage of not being able to be with her school friends, the rage of all the change, you know, all of it. So I had to really help her be with her anger. She was fighting me a lot and she was melting down a lot. It took a lot of attention. But I think Kevin and I made it our priority at the beginning. We took a whole month where we just stayed in one house. We didn't travel and we just helped the kids acclimatize and to process everything that was coming through. I mean, Callum started banging his head against the wall 10 days into quarantine because he's two and he had just been confined for so long. That's how deep it was going. And so for Taya, I had to give her a lot of time and attention to talk about her feelings. I had to help her hit pillows. I had to give her permission to be as angry as she was. She kept saying, I'm having bad thoughts. I must be a bad person. And I was saying, well, no, that's just really normal and really human to think the things you're thinking and to feel the kind of anger that you're feeling. I even took her out to the sea and we we roared into the ocean one day because she was just like, I just need to get it out, mummy. Callum obviously was so much younger that he just needed a lot of, you know, touch and holding and care. Um, I think I want to say this to everyone because if your children start behaving this way, please know you haven't done anything wrong. This is just a human behavior, like we're animals. And to suppress so much animal reaction is just, it's going to have to come out and as part of the healing process. Them, don't punish them. You know, we've got don't so punish them. helpful. There's so many. I feel, Nikki, you know me, I feel more and more soapboxy about this. There's so much unhelpful parenting experts, quote unquote, who would say what you should have done with her was naughty step her or punish her for the rage. Or, oh my God. That's what they would say. And I feel like we need voices like yours shouting this really loudly. Oh my God. I actually stood next to her. She was raging and she thought she was a bad person. And I just stood next to her and started raging with her. And she was like, what? You mean you're going to do it too? And I was like, yeah, if you're going to do it, I'm going to do it. It feels really good. Let's just do it. I'm really angry too. And so we just did it together. And she was like, oh my God, I'm allowed to be like this. I'm allowed to be like this messy, wild, crazy, angry, not nice person. Yes. Yes, you are. It's completely human and healthy. 
I went online yesterday. Callum has started waking up a lot in the night and he's having tantrums again. And I went online yesterday and I Googled his age. And the advice that came up for his age, get this, said the best thing to do for a two and a half year old that starts having massive tantrums is just ignore them. (laughs) I was like, what? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I mean, I would say 99% of the clients that I work with, adult clients, 100% of the adult clients I work with today, 100% I have to go back into points in childhood with every single one and release those points of trauma of moments like that, being ignored, being shut down, being punished. Like, don't ignore them. Hold space allow them to feel with safety, with boundaries. Like Callum yesterday, he literally was throwing himself around on the floor, but I made sure that it was in a room where he wasn't going to hurt himself. And I literally just sat there and I had my arms open and I just kept looking at him and I was like, it's all right, babe, you can be angry. I get it. He just kept going and going. And then eventually I said, are you done? And he just went, (sighs) yes mommy (laughs) and he climbed into my lap and just like kissed me and he really was done like he was done (laughs) and then we went for a walk (laughs) I mean I've spent so much money in therapy just to have those kinds of tantrums (laughs) I think what is so important about your work and the book is that when you can do that as a parent for yourself Imagine your two going through, you know, what you've described, you know, rage and anger. If that was triggering to you, of course you'd shut it down. Of course that's why that's the advice. Because that parenting expert probably wrote that from their unhealed place. They probably had their emotions suppressed, you know, because as you say, that is the norm in our society. The norm in our society, particularly off the back of 80s kind of, you know, the type of parenting that you and I would have had in the 80s, which was very much like, you know, emotions are just second, you know, just to be ignored and suppressed. And yes, so it said, well, it's kind of I was a real judgment from you and I, I think, because mm-hmm. I would be shutting my kids down. I would be suppressing them if I just wasn't given the gift of my ending, you know, my breakdown, which meant I had to find a new way because I would have yes. died probably. So it's a oh, judgment for sure. I want to say to everybody listening to this right now that I have shut my children down. I have been triggered. There was a certain tone in Taya's cry when she was born that would trigger me so much that it would bring up rage in me, that I would have to leave the room. And that was my own trauma from my own childhood coming up. And I want everybody here to know that is absolutely part of the process. The final chapters of my book, I say, you know, the biggest realization I have ever had is that after doing all the work, all the workshops, all the blood, sweat, and tears of healing and, you know, facing things I didn't want to face, the biggest realization I've ever had was, was that in the end, it was never all about me. That when I do this work, it impacts everyone around me. It heals my children. It creates space for them to have a different 
way of being in the world. It creates healing for my mother who wasn't able to do it in her lifetime for herself. It creates healing in my bloodline of my ancestors who came before me and the generations that happen next. Every single moment that we are willing to face what is showing itself with a level of consciousness and courage and to bring healing there instead of fixing, we clear something for the next generation. And it can happen in small ways and big ways. So when we do the work on ourselves and, you know, you go through the process of the book, I say clearly, you're not just doing this for you. This has an impact on everyone around you. And I think that's how we're going to change this world. And it happens one person at a time. My mother couldn't be with my spirit, my personality, my, my energy, because she wasn't allowed to be herself when she was a little girl. You know, she was a, a Malaysian girl with dark skin. In her culture, to have dark skin means that you're like the slave or the, or the servant. She was the only one in her family that had dark brown skin. Everyone had like light olive skin. So she was born with this dark, dark brown skin. And she felt like the bad one, the unloved one. And, you know, her mother would treat her less than. So of course, you know, when she becomes a mother, and I'm like full of all this energy. She doesn't know how to cope, but she's going to try and squash that. It's just the only thing she knows. So, you know, when we are able to clear these things in ourselves, we get healing, but then it completely shifts the line in our family as well. And it's just, I look at where we are in the world right now. I just can't see anything more important. There's nothing more important. So if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? I would want to gift every single mother in this world with the ability to have unconditional compassion for themselves and with that unbelievable courage to face what they can't face and to create change. Courage and change are the gifts that become possible if you're willing to be compassionate to your humanness. Every single one of us is human. Nobody gets out of this one. (laughs) We're human. And for every mother out there, the things that you struggle with inside yourself, the things that you think you're doing wrong, or if you see yourself passing anything onto your children, the things that you feel like you can't control, these are not because you're bad. It's not because you've failed. It's because you're human and you've learned it. I always say this to my clients. You learned it from the masters. You learned it from the best. So if you can bring compassion to your own humanness, anything can heal. Anything can heal in a foundation of compassion. And from that, courage comes, enormous courage, courage to change and courage to heal. So... Wow, if I just even imagine that every mother on this planet had so much compassion for themselves, I mean, the kind of change that would happen would be unbelievable. It would change everything. If the mothers heal, everything heals. Have I told you this before that, you know, the Dalai Lama said the world would be saved by the Western woman? Yeah. And in private, 
apparently he said the world will be saved by the Western mother. I believe it. When I look at where we are in the world today, I see the importance of the next generation, that it is up to us to do the work to clear enough for the next generation, because the next generation are going to be the ones that are come and change this world. They're the leaders of this world. And so where I look at where we are, we are the ones that have the invitation to create that change for them. If we can heal enough in ourselves, we can shift the consciousness that the children that are coming next will grow up into, and that will change our planet. That's my vision. That's the only thing I see. Especially as, you know, when we're carrying our babies, we're carrying the eggs, you know, of our grandchildren. Absolutely. It's It's incredible. You know, I sat with Taya the other day and I said, you know, honey, I have passed stuff down to you. I have passed stuff down to you. I have cleared a lot because she knows my mom, obviously. And I was like, you know that I've cleared a lot when we look at Nana. <laughs> and she, she laughed. And I said, but I have passed stuff down to you. I've done the best that I can and I'll keep going. But you will carry some of this. And my job is to teach you how to be with whatever it is that you're carrying in a different way so that you can be responsible for it and continue the work that I'm doing. These are conversations that we can be having with our children that empowers them, that gives them a new kind of relationship with the stuff that they're struggling with and that's going on inside of them, that it's theirs to carry, but it's not who they are. These are the kind of conversations I'm having with Taya now, you know, and they're just so important. I just love what I hear when, you know, and I, I witness you with Taya a lot, is, or used to before you move to the other side of the world, is... <laughs> How normal you make it for her to be messy and human, like you say, but but I think, gosh, if I reflect back on that, you know, all those times when I felt, now looking back, I can just see I was very human, but all those times when I felt broken, there's something wrong with me. You know, gosh, to have someone sit with me and say, there's nothing wrong with you. I just cannot yeah. imagine how profound yeah. That is such a gift to give to her. It's such yes. a gift to give to her. You know, particularly in this time <laughs> when we love to diagnose and to pathologize and, you know, tell children there is something wrong with them. You know, I see that just so much. There is something wrong with you. Here's a label. Mm. Yes. And in fact, <laughs> as soon as we put a label on it, it just creates more of a problem. Yeah, I think the more that we can allow them to really be their human selves, the freer that we're allowing ourselves to be too. And we teach our children compassion for human beings. Taya said to me the other day, um, my husband had lost his temper and he had stormed off and then he came back and he apologized. And Taya said to me, do you know what I love about you too? (laughs) She said, you guys don't do it perfectly. You know, you get it wrong. She goes, but what I love about you two is you always come back and you own it and you apologize. And she said, that always makes me feel like, you know, this is okay. And I just thought that was such a grown up thing for her to say. 
what I realized in that moment is that what we're teaching her is that human beings are imperfect. We're going to mess up. We're going to hurt each other. We're going to make mistakes. And part of being imperfect is can we accept each other like that, but then can we also be responsible to come back and make, make it whole? I just thought, wow, that in itself is a life lesson that took me so long to learn, so long to learn. These putting everyone on pedestals, and it's like, actually, no, gosh, gift them with the, with the opportunity to see how imperfect we are and that and in our imperfection we're still lovable, beautiful, whole, compassionate human beings. That's such a gift. What a beautiful place to end. <laughs> So So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists And we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time.